Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. What are we talking about this week, Carrie? What are we doing? What are we investigating? Well, Sean, today we're going to be discussing mass hysterias throughout the years and the world. Oh, so not just the years, but also across the world. Yep. <laughs> uh, I love it. Uh, of course, for our listeners, the most famous mass hysteria that you've uh, certainly heard of would be the Salem Witch Trials. Um, the McCarthy, like, kind of red scare of the 50s was sort of a mass hysteria. Um, that's what we're talking about, right, Carrie? Bunch of people getting panicked about nothing? Yeah, so pretty much mass hysteria... It's basically a sociological and psychological phenomenon, and it's something that transmits collective illusions of threats, whether real or imaginary, through a population and society as a result of rumors and fear. So it could even kind of start from like an urban legend sort of situation. Or when uh, Cillian Murphy spreads all that gas throughout Gotham City. Spoilers. <laughs> Mass hysteria is also known as mass psychogenic illness, collective hysteria, group hysteria, or collective obsessional behavior. So it's very much a mental thing. Um, and the last one kind of, that's a just what it says on the tin kind of a kind of a name for it. I like that naming convention. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the most famous one that most people probably know about is the Salem Witch Trials. Now... If you're listening to this, unless you're not from America, perhaps, uh, you might, you probably know. But it's around 1692, a group of adolescent girls began to have fits that were attributed to the influence of the devil in and about the town of Salem, Massachusetts. And the hysteria, and the hysteria that resulted led to the execution deaths of 20 townspeople accused of practicing witchcraft. The hanging deaths, and then more people died just kind of rotting away in cells. There were a few of those, yeah. So it's one of my most favorite topics, and I'm not going to wedge it into this episode. It deserves a, an episode or two or a series all its own. But I will be going into other hysterias that affected large groups of people, usually bound together by location. And this could be like a town, a school, a nunnery, like this is the kind of stuff that binds these people in these cases. We're going to get thee to a nunnery? Maybe not, but there are hysterias that have occurred at nunneries. The immortal bard. Yeah, I, I know what that's from. Ugh. Sean, <laughs> what I found most fascinating about mass hysterias is how they spread, even when the hysteria is really about the most ridiculous thing in the world. Or the actions caused by the hysteria seem completely silly. Almost especially in those cases, right? Mm-hmm. But those enveloped by hysteria take what they're going through, like, deadly seriously. So it really makes me wonder what causes mass hysteria outbreaks? How does it spread? And if it ever does, does this hysteria end? So let's start with our furthest one back, way back in history, with the Dancing Plague of 1518. Oh, I have a guess at what this is going to be, and I love it. Mm-hmm. 
The Dancing Plague was a case of dancing mania that occurred in Strasbourg, Alsace. So like the hustle? <laughs> that, well, that was a craze. I don't know if that was a hysteria. Uh, this is in modern day f- France um, in July 1518. And it sounds totally absurd. And for those seeing it, it really was. But it began with a woman referred to in contemporary accounts as Frau Trophea that started to dance fervently in a street in Strasbourg. She kept dancing continuously for four to six days. Ooh, she's a party. Mm-hmm. By the end of the week, 34 others had joined in her frenzied dancing vigil. And within a month, the crowd of dancers had grown to 400. And all of these people, like, couldn't stop, couldn't stop dancing. Yeah, it's several hundred people just in the street doing a mad jig and leaping and skipping around for a month straight. Was there any music playing? Did someone show up to at least give these poor, poor dancers <laughs> some music? We'll get there, but it wasn't like there was a concert going on and the party never stopped. She, she just started dancing for no reason, and then everyone else joined in. At the height of the dancing epidemic, some sources claim that 15 town residents a day were dying from strokes, heart attacks, and total exhaustion. Much like listening to a song that's stuck in your head to try and get it out, the town hired musicians and built a stage to play music for the dancing so they could kind of dance themselves out. Fantastic. Or just um, sort of a, a last rites for these poor. They're like, these people are screwed. They're not, we're not going to be able to stop them. Maybe. Physicians were hypothesizing that these townspeople had hot blood, as they called it, and simply had to dance it away. Oh, I thought they were going to bring in the leeches. (laughs) Half-blooded. Unfortunately, this seemed to encourage more people to join in the craze because, you know, there's music now. It's a party. And it only began to subside in early September. What? So how long was the dance going on? Uh, Frau Trophea started in July 1518, and it lasted till early December, or early September, sorry. Did she die, Frau Trophea? No, I couldn't find anything else about the Frau, but that's the name that some called patient zero in this situation. So this might sound like the peak of absurd historical folklore, but it's clear from a variety of historical documents, including surviving physicians' notes, church sermons, chronicles, and the Strasbourg City Council notes, that this really did happen. (laughs) And it's not just a little legend, basically. Whether there were fatalities is up to debate, as some of the previous stated sources don't make a note of the deaths. You would think that they would talk about that. Later accounts mention the deaths, but whether this is an embellishment or not is up for debate. The dancing plague has clearly inspired some pop culture, most obviously to me, in Hocus Pocus and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So for the first, Winifred goes to the Salem Halloween party and condemns the revelers to... Dance! Dance! Dance until you die! understated performance by Bette Midler. (laughs) One of the greats. Uh, And it's basically exactly what is purported to have happened in Strasbourg. And in Buffy's musical episode from season six, Once More with Feeling, a singing and dancing demon comes to town, forcing more and more Sunnydale citizens to sing and dance until they literally burst into flames. So 
If that's not inspired by this, I don't know what is. Well, not to mention the Macarena. Another craze, not hysteria. Very different. I'm still doing it. The twist, craze, not hysteria. But why did this... What What about let's twist again? Second craze. Sequel craze, not hysteria. So why did this actual dancing hysteria happen? There are a few theories. One is our classic ergot poisoning, which is also commonly seen in the story of the Salem Witch Trials. Yes. Uh, It's a a hallucinogenic um, fungus, basically, right? Yes. This ergot fungi commonly grows on grains, such as rye, that are used for for baking bread in these times. And in this fungi are psychoactive chemicals called ergotamine, which are structurally related to LSD and is the original substance that the first LSD was synthesized from. So those under the influence of food poisoning due to ergot would basically be on a massive hallucinogenic trip. And so if everybody in town eats the bad bread, that's how you get the... um... That's how you get the, uh, the... The bad dance. Yeah, the eight-month-long eight, the eight long, uh, uh, dance marathon. Mm-hmm. Now, this theory is disputed by John Waller in a t- 2009 issue of The Lancet, a medical journal. Waller states that this theory does not seem tenable since it is unlikely that those poisoned by ergot could have danced for days at a time. Nor would so many people have reacted to its psychotropic chemicals in the same way, the dancing. The ergotism theory also fails to explain why virtually every outbreak occurred somewhere along the Rhine and Moselle rivers, areas linked by water, but with quite different climates and crops. Interesting. So maybe there was something in the water. Yeah, perhaps. Um, He brings up multiple other dancing plagues throughout early history, like in Germany in 1021, 1247, and 1374, and smaller-scale dancing manias gripping individuals or entire families from Switzerland to the Holy Roman Empire during the 15 and 1600s. Dancing manias. Mm-hmm. That's a, um, it sounds like a, it should be a bard spell in D&D. <laughs> Waller and others suggest that perhaps the plague of 1518, and maybe other dancing plagues as well, were caused by intense stress and or religious fears, or combination of both i mean that's kind of an a to c still just leaving that question mark (laughs) in the middle though well mass psychogenic illness tends to spread rapidly in an epidemic pattern we know what that's like (laughs) all too well yeah when many individuals in an area are under elevated psychological stress People of Alsace were certainly suffering through a particularly difficult time with a series of terrible harvests, the highest grain prices for over a generation, the spread of syphilis, Mm. and recurrences of leprosy and actual plague. Yeah, if there's anything that I know that stops this, helps stop the spread of syphilis, it's a dance party. <laughs> well, it it is kind of weird. Like in this case, if they're so depressed, why did they dance and not wail, sob, fight? Why was dancing the hysteria? We could possibly trace it to the belief systems in these regions that kind of helped channel the despair into a dance obsession. 
There are several accounts from the mid to late 1500s of cults of entranced dancing in towns close to the Black Forest and where the Rhine enters the North Sea in Germany. Huh. Mm-hmm. These cults would deliberately enter a trance and then dance, accompanied by musicians, towards shrines dedicated to the saints most widely associated with the dancing curse, St. Vetus and St. John. Like, Vetus and John are causing it, or they're just the patron saint of those afflicted by it? I think whatever they're, they're the patron saint of, it has to do with... Dancing, maybe? Dancing, I don't know. Uh, and this would help translate a psychological epidemic into pretty much like an ecstatic religious ritual called a chorea. Uh, that's C-H-O-R-E-A. The Choreas were named after those saints, too. You have St. Vetus's Dance and St. John's Dance. And Professor Gregor Horst noted back in the 17th century that several women who annually visit the chapel of St. Vetus in Dreffelhausen dance madly all day and all night until they collapse in ecstasy. In this way, they come to themselves again and feel little or nothing till the next May, when they are again forced around St. Vetus's day to betake themselves to that place. One of these women is said to have danced every year for the past 20 years, another for a full 32. And in between, they feel little to nothing? They're just exhausted, I think. From this one day just of like, They just pass out. I mean, if you're dancing, like a wedding is tiring. If you're dancing for... 24 hours straight or something. Yeah, you're done. Um, so in these cases, it seems kind of closely linked with religion. Oh, hold on. Is there an open bar at the, uh, <laughs> at the uh, temple? I don't know if they uh, if this town also provided drinks as well as uh, musicians, but maybe that's something we can look into. Tarantism, in which victims were said to have been poisoned by a tarantula or scorpion, was an issue in Italy where it was claimed that dancing to particular music would help separate the venom from the blood. Oh, I thought you were going to say would attract scorpions. <laughs> no, this actually inspired the advent of the tarantella, which are various folk dances characterized by a fast, upbeat tempo, usually accompanied by tambourines, and you might recognize as the inspiration for the mamushka danced by Gomez and Fester in the Adams Family movie. Mamushka! Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we know now that mad dancing is not enough to remove venom from blood, but there were plenty of strange cures during these times, so it's not a stretch to believe that people might have thought frenzied dancing would be enough to alleviate psychological stress or appease their religious figures or cure poisoning. Sure, you can eat this corpse dust, or you can bake a cake with this dog urine, mm -hmm. or um, you can do a jig. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe I, I think I'd rather I'll, dance. I'll try the dance first. <laughs> I mean, we'll see if it does anything. Yeah. So perhaps this is the closest we can get to understanding why they did it back then, and why this kind of hysteria has mostly faded away as we've understood medicine more and more. You know I've got that dancing curse, baby. I get out there on that floor. Yeah, you're the real dancing plague of Connecticut. I am a curse to all around me. <laughs> well, there are different kinds of hysterias. So let's move on to 18, 1837, when the hysteria around Spring-Heeled Jack began. Spring-Heeled Jack USA, the Connecticut ska band? No, but I'm sure that's what they take their name from, Sean. 
This instance probably finds its most uh, modern companion in the Mothman sightings of Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the late 60s. Stories of mysterious phantom figures stalking the streets of London were not uncommon in the early 19th century, which is interesting since this belief wouldn't have even been a, a, suspi- um, a superstitious response to Jack the Ripper fears, that's, because the killer only showed up in 1888. Right, that's what my guess would have been was... Nope, this is this all before that. The Hammersmith ghost first appeared in 1803 and 04. At this time, many people claimed to have seen or even been attacked by a ghost in the area of Hammersmith in London. Locals believe this spirit to be that of a suicide victim. Why? I don't know. The fear of the ghost hit such a fever pitch that a man named Thomas Millwood was killed in the pursuit of the phantom, as Millwood was wearing his clothing of his trade, which was an all-white linen bricklayer's outfit, and he was mistaken for a ghost by an armed citizen named Francis Smith, and he was shot. Oh, no. Why would you shoot a ghost? Because he was like, I I know who you are, and he shoots him. Yeah, but that's not... No, it's dumb. It shouldn't work on a ghost. (laughs) If he thought he was a ghost, why did he shoot him? Maybe he was scared. I don't know. Milmud was neither a ghost nor a Scooby-Doo villain, and his death prompted Smith to be tried for murder and initially sentenced to hanging and dissection, later commuted to a year's hard labor. I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling bullets. And that's stupid... (laughs) (coughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Now, it's in this setting that Springheel Jack first arrives in October 1837. And by the way, this is not the first instance that hysteria takes place in October. Interesting. Interesting to note. Do you think people are just feeling spooky? With the last one, I think that plays into it, and we'll talk about that. A girl named Mary Stevens was walking from seeing her parents in Battersea to Lavender Hill, a shopping and residential street in South London, where she worked as a servant. As she made her way through Clapham Common, a large park, a strange figure leapt at her from a dark alley. He gripped her tightly in his arms and began to kiss her face and rip her clothes and touch her skin with his claws, as she described them, which she, sh- which she said were cold and clammy as those of a corpse. What year was this? 1837. How old is Matt Lauer? Negative. Negative old, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> I thought we'd found a, a link. No. Mary screamed and the attacker quickly fled and was not found by nearby residents summoned by Mary's scream. The next day, this leaping figure popped up again near Mary Stevens' home, jumping in front of a passing carriage and causing the coachman to lose control of his vehicle, crash, and become severely injured. What do we mean leaping? He's, he's got springy heels. He's, he's always jumping. That's his thing. He sounds like a... He leaps um, from place to place. Hee hee, hoo hoo. So he's a... <laughs> he's a... Um, he's an Inspector Gadget villain. Well, several witnesses claimed that the figure escaped by jumping over a nearby wall, which was about nine feet high, while cackling with high-pitched laughter. <laughs> Gross. Is he Christopher Lloyd from uh, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Also a spoiler. Maybe. Now, FYI, I looked into this. The current world record for the high jump is 2.45 meters, or about 8 feet. Uh, 
and this was achieved in the Olympics by Javier Sotomayor in 1993. So we've got our man, that's Springheel Jack. (laughs) And this was only because he just ran up and hurled himself over a horizontal bar, landing on copious amounts of pads, because if you do this, if you jump nine feet onto concrete, you're going to shatter your ankles, probably. Sure, unless you land on your back, and then you'll shatter that. Mm-hmm. So this guy, this spring-heeled Jack, would have had to clear a foot higher than the current world record. And just hop right over. Seems improbable, unless he was some sort of weird cryptid or supernaturally gifted. Or did he invent parkour? Maybe. After the second incident, the character was given the name Spring-Heeled Jack by the public. <laughs> because Londoners love giving their mysterious creeps the name Jack. Yeah, apparently. They re- they recycled that just, what, a couple years later then? Mm-hmm, within 50 years. A few months later, in January 1838, Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan, announced in a public session at the Mansion House that he had received an anonymous complaint a few years earlier by a resident of Peckham. The letter stated that, quote, It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil. (laughs) And moreover, that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. What? (laughs) I don't know. When he talks about depriving of them of their senses that just knocking them out um making them faint or something pretty much freaking them out and several never to recover except as burdens Burdens to to their their family at one house uh the man rang the bell the servant came to open the door this worse than brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a specter clad most perfectly the consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned and was never from that moment in her senses was never mm-hmm. he scared her uh, crazy mm-hmm. spring-heeled jack <laughs> yeah so the lord mayor seems skeptical but a member of his audience replied that the servant girls about kensington hammersmith remember that and ealing tell dreadful stories of this ghost or devil so they're like oh, it's a ghost or a devil or bear yes well that was the other guy's thought this, this guy narrowed it down ghost or devil not a bear this led to a re- I've never seen a bear clear any kind of a wall. <laughs> yeah. This led to a report published in the Times soon after, which drew a number of letters from around London, also complaining of a similarly wicked prankster. It kind of reminds me of the crying boy curse, uh, semi-hysteria, I guess, that we talked about a few episodes back. Yeah, where like, the police have to keep going like, guys... <laughs> It's not that. It's, it's not, not a cursed it's not painting. This. It's not a man. It's not a demon with springy heels. <laughs> in these letters came claims that young women in Hammersmith had been frightened into dangerous fits with some severely wounded by a sort of claws the miscreant wore on his hands. Dangerous fits? Mm-hmm. 
it, it, it's almost like coded language, like hysteria. Like, what do you think these dangerous fits consisted of? Like, one of them wanted ah! to vote. <laughs> Another claim was that several people had either died of fright or had had fits in Stockwell, Brighton, Camberwell, and Vauxhall, I think it is. Uh, another was that the trickster had been seen in Lewisham and Blackheath. And with this, the, the Lord Mayor instructed police to search for the individual and rewards were offered. So he was like, fine, I'll do it. All right, be on the lookout for a demon ghost bear <laughs> wearing stilts? Possibly. Um, so two more attacks raised the profile of spring Jack. In February 1838, Jane Alsop answered the door of her father's house to find a man claiming to be a police officer. The old Just Ted Bundy. Just a police officer, ma'am. <laughs> he requested a light from her, saying, We have caught spring Jack here in the lane. And he needed a light. Ma'am, we found spring Jack right out here. He's certainly not me. <laughs> so she gave the figure his requested candle, but the moment she did, he threw off his cloak and presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, vomiting blue and white flame from his mouth. What? With eyes resembling red balls of fire. And this kind of reminds me of the Mothman, too. That's That has red glowing eyes, right? Yep. Uh, I think probably because eyes, you know, eyes look that way sometimes in pictures. Yeah, but this is... That's not related to that. Well, I'm saying not light, here. light can reflect off someone's eyes and look that way. I don't, I've never seen that in, in person, though. I've only seen that with animals. I've never seen a person, like, physically do that, not in a picture. So I don't right. know. Um, he also apparently wore a large helmet and a tight-fitting outfit that resembled white whale skin. What? I don't know. He began tearing at her gown with claws she felt were made of some metallic substance, like the wolverine. And when she screamed and tried to run back toward the house, he tore her neck and arms as well. She was rescued by one of her sisters, and this assailant finally fled. That paints a very different picture from what I was imagining. Now he sounds like Speed Racer? I don't know, he's, he's, not, he's not a great guy. Around a week later, 18-year-old Lucy Scales was returning home with her sister after visiting her brother in the Limehouse area. While passing through Green Dragon Alley, she witnessed a figure standing down the alley who revealed a spurt of blue flame from under his large cloak as she came upon him and caused her to drop to the ground. She was blinded and she had violent fits that continued for hours. This guy has like so he has mind powers. Is that no? What? He's also got fire. He he spits fire, yo. Unless that was just hallucinations that he made this uh, person feel see. I don't know. Her brother heard the screams because they were pretty close by still, and he ran to the alley to find Lucy on the ground with her sister attempting to help her, but the strange figure had disappeared. <laughs> As a weird note, a man named Thomas Milbank boasted in his local pub that he was Springheel Jack. This is not to be confused with Thomas Millwood, the victim in the Hammersmith ghost case. Or Thomas Middleditch, the <laughs> improv comedian who... Are we supposed to like him still? I don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, the similarities also get weirder because Millbank wore a great coat with white coveralls to appear spectral, and Mill Wood 
appeared so to Francis Smith because he was wearing white overalls. Milbank escaped uh, conviction because he clearly couldn't breathe fire. So they were like, couldn't be you. And also insisted her attacker had done that. After these incidents, Springheel Jack became a local folk legend, appearing in several Penny Dreadfuls and plays performed in the cheap theaters of the time. Your classic little low-budget horror movies, so to speak. So there was... Do you think when the guy signed his, um, they, they started calling Jack the Ripper Jack because he signed his first letter Jack, right? Mm-hmm. Well, someone did. We don't, we don't letter. know if, if Jack, quote unquote, actually wrote that. Right. But do you think whoever wrote that letter grabbed the name from Springheeled Jack? It could be. Or like I said, maybe Londoners just love calling creepy guys Jack. I Boy, don't know. Hey, Jack. I don't know. As Springheeled Jack's fame grew, however, reports appeared less, though there were more reports in 1843 of a leaping attacker coming upon mail coaches. There, there can't be more than one <laughs> leaping attacker. Well, you know, he, he took a little break. He came back to attack some coaches, popped up again in the 1870s, around 1888, but in Liverpool, not Whitechapel. And the last time reported was 1904. I know that there are stories where Batman is in, like, the 1800s. It's like Batman by Gaslight, you know, and he's like... Batman versus Jack the Ripper. Um, If there's not one... If Springheel Jack isn't in the, like, Gaslight Batman's rogues gallery, you're you're crazy. This is a ready-made Batman villain. He's so dumb. For sure. And he just jumps places. Like, that seems like a Batman villain thing to do. So no one was actually caught and identified as the Springheel Jack. This, along with his supernatural abilities of high leaping and fire breathing. Supernatural (laughs) abilities of high leaping. Yes. Well, higher than the the practically superhuman average. Um, It's kind of caused many to attribute this story to like just a mass hysteria, one that equated Jack with a boogeyman or devil because everyone was paranoid about that. Or a bear. Also equally as frightening. (laughs) Much like with Jack the Ripper, there were many contemporary theories about who the real spring-heeled Jack was, including thoughts around 1840 that it could be an Irish nobleman named the Marquess of Waterford who died in 1859. Oh, this is like when people say that William Gull was Jack the Ripper. Well, or Prince Prince Albert, I think yep. it was. Yep. Yep. It's 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 just the same. It's just 50 years earlier. Is that the same Prince Albert that um No, that's his son, Albert Victor. Really? Prince Albert is the one that and Albert Victor is the one that they think might have been Jack the Ripper. Okay, yeah, but w- why is that thing named after Prince Albert? Apparently, he pierced his penis, Sean. I don't know. <sighs> Different strokes, I guess. <laughs> Afterward, probably. Yikes. Anyway. <laughs> oh, God. This entity was also theorized as being possibly paranormal, extraterrestrial, or superhuman. In his book, Unexplained, which we have right behind you over there, Jerome Clark, or Jeremy Clark, categorizes Jack as a phantom attacker, with characteristics including that phantom attackers appear to be human and may be perceived as prosaic criminals, but may display extraordinary abilities and or cannot be caught by the authorities. 
Victims commonly experience the attack in their bedrooms, homes, or other seemingly secure enclosures. They may report being pinned or paralyzed, or the, or on the other hand, in- describe a siege in which they fought off a persistent intruder or intruders. Well, the first part of that sentence sounds like sleep paralysis. That's Yeah, that's what I thought. It sounds really similar to sleep paralysis, but since basically all of these things were with people traveling, whether they were walking or driving a mail coach or whatever, it's likely not the case. Mail? Kimp? <sighs> well, after the break, we'll talk about a couple more instances of mass hysteria. Is this one for MailChimp? No. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. A woman is found in a well 11 days after she's supposed to elope, and it ignites the first murder trial in U.S. history. One of the oldest buildings in New York is the home to an old ghost and plenty of terrifying stories. The daughter of a former vice president and one of the most famous murderers in U.S. history goes missing while sailing- Adam, what are you doing? Well, Christina, I'm doing the trailer for our podcast. No, no, we agreed it was going to be fun and lively, like the show, with plenty of character voices. Oh, no, 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 no voices. Oh, there would be plenty of voices. Fine, have it your way. Join us each week on the New York Mystery Machine, where we explore the biggest unsolved murders, hauntings, disappearances, and more. Hosted by me, Adam Mace. And me, Christina Marinelli. Available every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at New York Mystery Machine and Twitter at New York Mysteries. The New York Mystery Machine. Get, Get on, on board! Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just covered the thrilling, gripping, and terrifying tale of Spring-Heeled Jack. But Carrie, that's not the biggest, best, or scariest hysteria you have for us today, is it? Um, I'm not really ranking them. Oh, no, you told me this is the worst. I'm giving this the, the bottom of the barrel next. These the worst. chumps. I didn't these, tell you. These chumps who listen said to this these thing listen four. no matter what. I said these are four examples we can have you rank them at the end like the haunted cemeteries sure okay in terms of scariest or just worst whatever that means i don't know how to rank these (laughs) what do i wish was the real what do i wish was real the most okay let's move on to another phantom attacker hysteria the mad gasser of mattoon oh this sounds spring-heeled jackass if Mm -hmm. i'm being honest they usually get lumped together it's very it's a similar vibe where's mattoon 
Mattoon is in Illinois. Oh, okay. I, I thought this would be in Europe somewhere. No, nope. So this is more recent than... Uh... Getting there. Okay. I'm getting there. <laughs> the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, also known as the Anesthetic Prowler and the Phantom Anesthetist, which is... A tongue twister. The phantom anesthetist. Is a person or group of people believed to be responsible for a series of gas attacks that may have occurred in Mattoon, Illinois, during the mid-1940s. May have occurred? Mm-hmm. The first of the mad gasser incidents supposedly occurred at a private home on Grant Avenue in Mattoon on August 31st, 1944. Homeowner Urban Rafe... Rafe? Rafe? I don't know. How do you spell it? R-A-E-F. Rafe. Rafe. Was awakened in the early morning hours by a strange odor that he felt made him nauseated and weak and was overcome with a fit of vomiting. Because of this, Rafe's wife attempted to check the stove to see if there was a problem with the pilot light because they smelled this strange smelly smell. Mm-hmm. But she found that she was partially paralyzed herself and unable to leave her bed. A similar incident was reported by a young mother living close by later that very same night, who found herself unable to leave her bed to attend to her coughing daughter. She she also woke up to a strange smelly smell. Okay. Mm -hmm. The third reported incident, which occurred the next day on September 1st, became the first case to be reported by the media. A Mrs. Kearney living on Marshall Avenue reported smelling a strong, sweet odor around 11 p.m., which continued getting stronger as Kearney began to lose feeling in her legs. That's never a good sign. No. Her sister, who was in the home, also noticed the odor and felt it was coming in the direction from the open bedroom window. But when she kind of leaned out, she didn't think that it was coming from the flowers that were planted outside the window. I'd ask my husband Frank to check on me, but he hasn't felt my legs in 20 years. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Police were contacted, but no evidence of a prowler was found. Bert Kearney, a taxi driver, arrived home to his wife at 1230 a.m. and found an unknown man wearing dark clothing and a tight-fitting cap hiding near one of the home's windows. Bert gave chase as the man fled, but was unable to catch him. Was this Joe Pesci from Home Alone? <laughs> Looks, It sounds like him. He's wearing a coupoline. He's wearing a coupoline. That's a, it's a beanie if you're not Italian. A watch cap. <laughs> uh, so Mrs. Kearney also had reported a burning sensation on her lips and throat after the supposed gas attack. So people were already thinking, it's gas, baby. So what does she think that Joe Pesci did? Came in and leaned right over her bed and blew gas in her face? Got it through the open window. You wouldn't have to lean in. You would just have to be outside the window. So in the days following, there were several more similar attacks reported to police, including Mrs. Beulah Cords becoming violently ill after smelling a cloth found on her porch September 5th. And Fred Goebel on September 6th seeing a prowler he believed to be the mad gasser. If you pick up a cloth on your front porch and you smell it and then you vomit, (laughs) I'm not sure that constitutes an attack. Cords had a particularly bad reaction with swelling in her face, burning in her mouth and throat, and intense vomiting. Some thought maybe that the 
cloth was there um, to try and knock out the family dog so that the house could be robbed more easily. Right, but it doesn't seem like it was chloroform because she didn't pass out. She just threw up a bunch. You don't want the family dog to just throw up a bunch. It'll be distracted. I certainly don't want that. Loudly no. distracted. <laughs> like, yeah, Poe po throwing up can wake me from a dead sleep at 3 a.m. So that that would be the best alarm possible to me. Along with the cloth, a well-used skeleton key and a large, nearly empty tube of lipstick was found on the sidewalk near the porch. Though the cloth was analyzed by experts, no chemicals were found on it that could explain Cords' reaction. Which is weird. Yeah. It is definitely weird. Some townspeople allegedly found footprints under their windows and tears in their window screens. So many reports were called into police that by September 12th, they had to reduce the priority given to gasser reports and stated it may be due to the anxiety felt by local women while men were deployed in war service. So, That's it? That's the only explanation for the gasser? Typical. After that, the only report of note came in from Bertha Birch, which Bertha. is a for unfortunate name, on September 13th, who described seeing the gasser. And she said it was a woman dressed as a man, and woman's footprints were found at the scene. A real Bertha Butch, if you will. Wow. Okay. I'm not sure when the figure started to be called the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, but that's the name that they gave this person to this day. A couple weeks after the attacks began, Commissioner of Public Health Thomas V. Wright stated that though there had undoubtedly been a number of gassing incidents, many were likely due to hysteria. And he, he wasn't really sure how to divide these up into different criteria, but uh, he's like, some of them are real, some of them I'm sure is just people being crazy. Okay, so he thinks there was a gasser, though, at some point. There could be. There's undoubtedly been a number of gassing incidents, but many were likely due to hysteria. And could some be from like... He seems a... to be hedging here. <laughs> that, yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, he's hedging like Edward Scissorhands over here. Wow. Is it possible? I mean, what would the symptoms be from like a gas leak in your house? Natural gas. Um... That, I mean, I'm sure passing out and stuff. I know carbon monoxide is you pass out, you feel sick, you, you might, might have hallucinations and things like that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I'm sure all these people, all their houses were checked, you know. In the 40s? Yeah, the lady said she wanted to get up and check the stove to see if she had left the pilot light on. So they knew about this possibility. Probably even more so because more things were gas back then. Yeah. Still, though. Commissioner Wright told the media, quote, there is no doubt that a gas maniac exists, which wow. that's what I call you after a night of Mexican. Oh, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and has made a number of attacks, but many of the reported attacks are nothing more than hysteria. All right. So a lot of people just, if they were tired, they were like, I must have been gassed. <laughs> a lot of these people were like projectile vomiting and stuff. Police Chief C.E. Cole did him one better and stated that he felt there hadn't been any gas attacks at all. But these were just likely chemicals carried on the wind from nearby industrial facilities. And then it was all exacerbated by public panic. 
that's what I was kind of expecting the answer to be. Because, As... I don't know if I'm jumping in too early with this, but the question still remains, Why? As early as 1945, the Mad Gasser case was being presented as an instance of mass hysteria, first in an article titled The Phantom Anesthetist of Mattoon, a field study of mass hysteria. Mad Gasser's catchy here, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta admit. Mm-hmm. And this appeared in the journal, journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology by Donald M. Johnson. Some experts also believe that the hysteria was fueled by the headline, Mrs. Kearney and Daughter First Victims, in the Mattoon Journal-Gazette, which framed the story in an assumption that there would be more attacks. <laughs> First, <laughs> First victims, victims, like... Of the mad gasser Is that a Mattoon. threat? Yeah. Aside from the hysteria, is there something to the police chief's suggestion that chemicals were being carried from nearby facilities? Great question, Carrie. Uh, is there? <laughs> there are conflicting thoughts on this. Chief Cole felt that carbon te tetrachloride, or oh, fuck, trichloroethylene, both of which have a sweet odor and can induce illness symptoms, could have been the substance released as toxic waste. However, Atlas Imperial, the primary company that would have uh, contributed to this issue, released a statement in response saying that their entire facility only had five gallons of carbon tetrachloride in stock contained within firefighting equipment. Further, they felt that any quantities of trichloroethylene, <laughs> which is an industrial solvent, would not be responsible for the sickness in the town and that it would have taken a truly significant amount to sicken the townspeople and their own factory workers had not experienced any of the symptoms that the others were. Okay, so not from that facility. Right, and this is probably the biggest, closest one. Could it have been an actual assailant carrying out these gassings just as it appeared? Or maybe, just like Spring-Heeled Jack was described, some sort of paranormal or extraterrestrial being? The question is open-ended. My question is qui bono? Sonny Bono? Yeah. Who, who, for what reason would, would you do this? Mischief, as Loki would say. For the love of mischief. And probably to make people barf a lot. You don't seem like a good person if you're doing this. Yeah, but Loki really does stuff for power, not for mischief. There's never really there's mischief. A, there's a power in fear. Some people just like to watch the world burn, Sean. I'm quoting all the superheroes today. <laughs> Some people like to to scare people. Our yeah. podcast is called Ain't It Scary, Sean. I know, but you think that's that's it? And you and you do Sometimes. it by putting some gas in people's houses? Why Sometimes. didn't he maybe maybe they maybe they were up? trying to kill these people. Why didn't he strap some springs on his feet? Jump over a wall. That seemed to scare a bunch of people. Why am I not a millionaire? We'll never know, Sean. Inflation. <laughs> The most recent mass hysteria case we'll cover on this episode is one our listeners may remember, unless you're like four years old, in which case, go to your mommy. Stop listening to this. Sick burn. <laughs> the 2016 rash of clown sightings. Do you remember this, yeah, of Sean? Of course I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. This followed the announcement and first trailers for the film It, if I remember correctly. It's around the same time. 
the movie itself came out the it had been announced but the movie itself came out a year later so that feels early for a trailer they shot that thing in advance and they marketed it so hard yeah but i don't know if the trailer i think the trailer came out around my birthday of 2017 i don't know why i remember that but i remember being very excited because it's my favorite book so i don't think uh, they knew that the movie was coming out but i don't think the trailers were out yet the idea of a creepy haunting clown is nothing new in pop culture Ronald McDonald and Bozo were always somewhat unsettling, and of course you have serial killer John Wayne Gacy moonlighting as a sinister-looking clown. And I believe there was a, a slight rash of clown sightings in the 70s after John Wayne Gacy. We'll get there. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> this literal killer clown helped inspire the most famous evil clown in popular culture, which Sean just tangentially mentioned... Pennywise from Stephen King's 1986 novel, It. Also not a clown. He takes the guise of a clown. You fucking pedant. <clears throat> As a culture. I was trying to, I was trying to like get people, ooh, I gotta read this book. What is yeah, it? Read the book. It's, it's very good. If you've heard our Audible, you, you hear us uh, talking about it. Well, me, at least. As a culture, sometime post-mid-20th century, we really turned on the idea of the clown from being fun to being freaky. In 1981, years before the publication of the book It, a group of school children in Brookline, Massachusetts, reported seeing scary clowns in a black van. A memo of caution was then sent to Boston-area school administrators. And the panic spread even then, with multiple cities in the United States during the summer of 81 reporting phantom clown sightings. We've also had rashes in 86, 91, 94, 2008. It's not just a recent thing. So it's in this context that we get the 2016 sightings. The first reports came in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was five pictures of a creepy-looking clown roaming a vacant parking lot at night under a bridge in downtown Green Bay. And these pictures started going viral on August 1st, 2016. Shortly after... Just roaming around, just loitering clowns. Just being creepy. Shortly after, a Facebook page was created claiming the clown was named Gags. Gags? Gagarini. This story popped up on Fox News, USA Today, and multiple other news outlets. Eventually, a Wisconsin filmmaker announced that the pictures were a stunt to publicize their unreleased short film Gags with a feature film based on the short coming in 2018. Did that ever come out? I believe so. Despite the initial sighting being a marketing ploy, the madness didn't stop. At the end of August 2016, another incident occurred in Greenville, South Carolina, where multiple school children reported seeing a group of frightening-looking clowns whispering and making strange noises at the edge of a local forest. And, of course, at the time, like that first clown sighting in Wisconsin got reported across the country. I'm sure mm -hmm. I cut video of it for the morning news. Probably. And then... The second half of the story, I'm sure, didn't get reported in the morning on local news, because nope. who cares that it was just a marketing stunt? Yeah, and that was, like, later on, right? So you're not going to follow up with, it was all bullshit. And because people already don't remember that story. But when they see the next clown story, they go, remember? oh my god, there's a bunch of clowns. Mm-hmm. 
Local news in South Carolina reported on the story with headlines like, Clowns in woods try to lure children with money, residents say. Uh, <laughs> Which is fair enough. I, I could probably... <laughs> that's bad journalism. I could probably be lured that way, too. Like, here's a 20. Like, okay, sure. If you were trying to lure kids, it would be like, here's Candy. a Nintendo Switch cartridge. Yeah, sure. Police investigation turned here's up... A, here's a dab. A dab? Yeah, that little dance. The oh, I... Here's a floss. I, you're you're using words that mean other things, and I'm getting very confused. No, they're not giving the children. Uh, 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 never mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, police investigation turned up a total lack of evidence, leading them to feel it was a hysteria or a hoax. More clown hoaxes or hysteria spread up from the Carolinas, with a Winston-Salem man being arrested for falsifying a police report about a clown sighting. How are we feeling about craze? Maybe it's a clown craze? Clown craze. Another report from Macon, Georgia, alleged a group of clowns menacing children at a bus stop. Ooh, crazy! Mm -hmm. The clown hysteria spread throughout the southeast United States, then up the coast. I remember it. Hitting Connecticut hard with our nearby Sacred Heart University landing in the Fairfield patch for calls made to campus security and police on October 3rd, 2016, concerning a clown sitting in a car outside a Bridgeport home occupied by SHU students. Though one of the students took a photo, no clown or vehicle was found on the scene once Bridgeport police arrived. He was probably just looking up the directions to the party he was supposed to be at. <laughs> probably. Which, bad job to have at this point. It's tough. News of this incident in particular reached me because I was still living at home nearby. And it actually prompted me to get a pepper spray keychain to put on my dog's leash in case some weirdo in a clown costume came at me while walking him alone at night. I didn't realize the pink mace keychain you have is it's specifically anti-clown mace. It, it that one is, yeah. Um, it's in a pink. All case. of my other pepper sprays are are normal. Nor normal, all of my other pepper sprays. <laughs> I certainly didn't believe in any paranormal background to this clown panic, but I can absolutely believe that many assholes were taking advantage of the widespread fears by dressing up and harassing people at night. So I wanted to be sure anyone doing this to me while walking my little baby pooch, who was indeed a little baby at the time, would receive a face full of mace in return. And I also still recommend having pepper spray at the ready, by the way, if you walk alone at night, in your house, in your car, purse, guy, girl, whoever, spray it up. What if he turned out to be a legitimate clown who just wanted to give you like a balloon? Absolutely not. You're not into it. <laughs> Absolutely not. He gets mace? <laughs> yes. And at, at night while I'm alone? That's tough. Wandering I mean, the streets? He doesn't have Absolutely so not. He doesn't have social graces. Only balloons. Is that a quote from it? His name is Squiggles. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. What's squiggling? Organs? Oh, I, 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 he can't tell you that. Although he has to if he's moving into your neighborhood. Ew. Continuing in Connecticut, Yukon students in stores left their dorms at night armed with hockey sticks and golf clubs, searching for any clowny perpetrators. Three teens in Ansonia were arrested for social media threats relating to the clown panic. Additional arrests were made in Naugatuck and Beacon Falls, and a specific threat was made to Lyman Hall High School in Wallingford, which led to an increased police presence throughout that day. 
Is Clown Panic already an indie rock band, or do we have to start that now? I think that's called Insane Clown Posse. That's not indie rock. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 2016 Clown pa- Panic is pretty cool. New Haven police and public schools investigated clown-related Instagram posts. It was really a legit thing that was all over the place at the time. And then you add that it's October in New England. I mean, could you get more spooky? To call police investigating clown-related Instagram posts as <laughs> legitimate is is a stretch. Well, stories of sightings spread west, too, with a variety of reports coming from states as disparate as Pennsylvania and Ohio to Kansas and Nebraska. Nine clown-related arrests were made in Alabama. That, over what period? This is all during October 2016. That's too many clown-related arrests. Well, people people be trifling. Squiggly clowns. Ugh. In an interview with Vox, folklorist Ben Radford said, I do think that there's an element of social anxiety. And he was referring to the 2016 election, which was winding down at the time. You're about to vote. There was a rise of mass shootings, which keeps on going, and increasing tension with police and protesters. Which keeps on going. <laughs> I, I can't tell if I want to interview Ben Radford or just be Ben Radford. He's the guy they always ask to come and he's, go like, ghosts are dumb. He's the, I think he's the editor of the Skeptical Inquirer. So it sounds like basically your job. And then I would be the editor of like, ghost shit magazine. He also, uh, Radford also said, it sort of creates this ripe social context for clown panics. Specifically, I guess. And indeed, the first wave came in the 80s, which was the heyday of the satanic panic and fears of child kidnappings. Clowns are figures meant to delight and entertain our children, but that concept was perverted with literal pedophile murder clowns, John Wayne Gacy and the character of Pennywise. Yes. (laughs) Only one of them is a literal murder clown, by the way. He's a... Pennywise is a murder clown. I mean, he's a fictional one, but he's, he's literally... He's... He's yeah, a I, just, I just meant he, he's not real. It's weird to put him in the same box with John Wayne Gacy, who they found 36 boys under his house. Spoilers. Spoilers. Again. As a society, whenever we perceive a threat to our children, no matter how outlandish, we tend to react starting at level 10. You can put whatever mask you want on it, said Radford, but essentially it's about a fear of the loss of the familiar and loss of control. Can't can't relate to that at all, can we? Um, I I love a loss of control. That's why I love a black diamond, and I don't really know how to ski. Yeah, you're you're too old to be just flopping down black diamond ski runs, babe. I'm sorry, you have a family now. No more of that. I don't want you to hit a tree. Please. It's the stopping. The slowing and the stopping is the impossible part. And that's the important part. Mm. The clown itself has always been more ambivalent than maybe we gave it credit for back in the mid-20th century. It was informed by the Harlequin, the Jester, pantomimes. These are all kind of sinister characters. In the opera Pagliacci, a clown murders his lover on stage, declaring, The comedy is finished! In Italian, of course. 
The character of the Joker from Batman Comics has existed since 1940, which was way before John Wayne Gacy came on the scene. And the costume of the Joker clown was what James Holmes wore when he carried out the horrific Aurora movie theater shooting during the premiere of The Dark Knight Rises. I mean, that's what people kept saying around that time. But I, I remember him having like, didn't he have orange hair at the time? Yes. So, I mean... I don't. I don't know. What... He wasn't wearing a purple suit, and uh, I, I, th- I just feel like that was. I, I just want to get out there. That I think that was media hysteria. That part of it, perhaps. People saying he was dressed as the Joker was a little uh, over the top. Clowns were certainly not always whimsical figures in history. Maybe that's why we have the instinctual creeps about them even today. A 2008 study by the University of Sheffield in the UK found that quote. Clowns are universally disliked by children. Some found them quite frightening and unknowable. If we have any clown listeners, I'm very sorry. I promise this segment is not meant to be a hateful screed against clowning. I love the use of the word unknowable. Unknowable. It's so vague. Frightening and unknowable. (laughs) I don't know him. So the, the hysteria did continue to spread for a while there. The Russian embassy in London issued an official warning for Russian and British citizens in mid-October 2016, and police in as far as Fiji warned locals about the events. Shops began to take costumes of clowns off of their shelves, including places as far away as New Zealand, and Target pulled clown masks from their website and multiple school districts ban with the wearing of clown outfits and masks. And again, this is Halloween time, so they're saying, don't dress up like this for Halloween. <laughs> You're not allowed. Well, in the school, the school district. Ban sure, but like Target is like, I'm not making this available to you. The hysteria culminated in multiple news outlets reporting on a threatened clown purge, much like in the film The Purge, alleged to be taking place on Halloween night. <laughs> This is just, that sounds like a social media joke. Multiple media outlets reported on this. I mean, that that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't mean this wasn't a meme. Though no real clown purge occurred, a family from Florida was attacked on Halloween by a group of around 20 people in clown masks, but no arrests were made. Clown purge is a really funny Twitter joke. Yes. It seems after this, and with the United States passing creepy season and heading into winter, the clown sightings finally died down and then died out. We'll see the clowns all overeat and then go into kind of a nap. They curl up in a cave for and twenty-seven go into a nap years for the, for the well, no, for the winter. <laughs> it's hard to find any articles about the phenomenon continuing from after l- the literal Halloween day, twenty sixteen, hmm. and it's kind of fitting. I mean, it was a bit of freaky fun for October, but after that, you know, it's it's time to get into the holidays. We don't have the patience for clowns standing creepily on street corners anymore. Yeah, it's a shame there's no, uh, it's a shame there hasn't been a trend of like a bunch of creepy, unkempt Santa Clauses descending on, oh, that's SantaCon, <laughs> never mind, we do have that. <laughs> the 2016 clown hysteria inspired several pieces of media, including the upcoming found footage film Behind the Sightings. It's about these sightings, and it'll ironically make its uh, long-delayed debut on July 6th on YouTube. Just a few days after you're going to be listening to this, so perhaps give the film a watch after this episode. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. 
We we keep hitting those like weirdly ironic like date matchups. Did you coordinate this? Uh, yes, I, I, I actually filmed behind the sightings. It's, it's my film. Just hold off another couple days, guys. We've got a podcast dropping. It's recording. I I didn't see it move. So Sean, what do you think of these hysterias? These four that we talked about today? Um, it's. For me, the the most amazing story you've told me today is by far the dancing hysteria. Mm-hmm. It's also the furthest back, which I, so I don't know how much of the actual story is exaggeration. But keep in mind, contemporary and official reports say that those things pretty much happened as stated. We're just unclear about if people died, died. from it. But that's the thing; it is pretty corroborated. I love I love the dancing plague, and uh, that's the one that I would least like to be a real thing, because mm-hmm. it's scary. It's scary. It it's, scares you. It's scary. I like to dance. Wow. I like to dance, and it it, it it's just a tragic thought that something that brings brings so much joy to myself and to those around me when they see my beautiful <laughs> dancing. The idea that that could be turned to my own ruin is uh, is is frightening. You don't want to dance, dance, dance till you die? No, uh, although unless it's, is it Dance Dance Revolution? Like, I'll play that for... Till you die? No, probably 35 minutes. <laughs> so which is the one that you most wish was true? Let's see, you've got Spring-Heeled Jack. You've got the Mad Gasser. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing about the clown sightings. The clown sightings are real were real they were out there they just weren't scary clowns there was no clown purge well we don't know if there were groups of creepy clowns whispering at children and luring them with money at the edge of a wood i'm sure there were not (laughs) so it might not be real all right so none of these other ones would be good if they were real i would like there not to be a spring but i'll put spring jack first because he's living in clearly kind of a more whimsical (laughs) fun world than you and i are a batman world yes so i i wish batman was real i.e i wish spring-heeled jack uh was real uh after that i guess i'll go mad gasser because the conspiracy of clowns um you know that could be pretty sinister mm-hmm. and the mad gasser again seems to just i don't know if he just gets his jollies <laughs> he loves people gassing sleep. people up yeah there are more fun gas make it laughing gas now that's a Batman villain again. We're back to Batman. Yeah, it's actually the Joker. I know. <laughs> so. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? Or solve a horrific case? (laughs) Hi, everybody. When you join Hunt a Killer, 
You receive a box full of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer, so you can escape with the answers you need, and I hope you do escape. Input our code SCARYSQUAD for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at huntakiller.com and find out if you have the guts to hunt a killer. The guts! That's the code SCARYSQUAD, S-C-A-R-Y-S-Q-U-A-D, for 20% off at huntakiller.com, www.huntakiller.com. Hunt a killer. Join the hunt today. Today, we're combining crying saucers with a segment I'll call Carrie Reads Government Documents So You Don't Have To. Oh, you're hitting us with a remix. <laughs> it's finally here, y'all. The Pentagon's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force Report to Congress is in. And there are some juicy tidbits in the unclassified version. How many documents have you uh, uh, dived into here, Carrie? Just the one. It's just the report. Some highlights. The report covers a total of 144, 144 UAP, or UFO. Un- unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Or UFO. Sightings by U.S. government sources between 2004 and 2021. Now, they've switched to saying UAP just because... UFO sounds crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the same thing. Of these 144 sightings, the task force was able to debunk one with high confidence, stating we identified the object as a large deflating balloon. The others remain unexplained. So did you catch that? 143 of them. Of the 144 total UFO sightings in the report were officially rendered unexplainable by the Pentagon. Yeah, they don't have enough information to explain them. The 143 unexplainable sightings were also not able to be confirmed as being extraterrestrial in nature, hence they felt some UAP might be technologies deployed by China, Russia, another nation, or non-governmental entity. In both the case of extraterrestrials or foreign government, it was felt that no clear linkage was able to be found at this time. In 18 cases, witnesses saw unusual patterns of movement or flight characteristics, Through, though more analysis is needed to determine if these characteristics represent breakthrough technology, which is basically past what we know is possible right now. Right, like, you can see a drone moving in the sky, and it looks really weird if you think it's something further away. Yeah, this is past that. A government source told AP News that the classified briefing contained little other information than what is publicly available in the unclassified report and the existing videos, which we talked about recently. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks said the report highlights the problem of flight hazards on or near military test ranges and ordered the Pentagon to establish a more formal means of coordinating the collection and analysis of UAP UFO information. So are we getting an official X-Files cabinet? I kind of hope so. Well, they've had projects like that before, isn't that? This sounds like Blue Book's mission. Pretty much, yeah. Senator Marco Rubio, the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee who long pushed for more UAP disclosure, 
which makes me like him just a little bit, wasn't fully satisfied, saying the report is, quote, an important first step in cataloging these incidents, but it is just a first step. The Defense Department and intelligence community have a lot of work to do before we can actually understand whether these aerial threats present a serious national security concern. So I'm crossing my fingers for more disclosure to come. Yeah, absolutely. And it's true that even if this stuff was completely earthly and completely not aliens... Um, Still not great to know what, not know what it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, I hope, I hope some of it's And this aliens. is the Pentagon saying, we don't know. So if they don't know, yeah, it's not good either way. There's lots of things they don't know, though. Sure, but they can probably be like, oh, that's our, our secret plane well, or whatever. they can't tell us that. Yeah, but even in the classified briefing, they didn't really say anything different. So, we'll see. Can't wait. Tom DeLong. Where have you been, Tom DeLong? He's, he was he's been working on this. Maybe he did. Maybe he's been pulling the Marco Rubio strings. Hey, Mom, there's something in the back room. Hope it's not the creatures from above. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. We truly, truly will. And we've got more great stuff coming on Patreon, so come over there and join us. Special thanks to our beloved patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, and Alex Nakutis. And also make sure to check out the New York Mystery Machine podcast, dropping wherever you get your podcasts on Monday, July 5th. The New York Mystery Machine is hosted by Christina Marinelli and Adam Mace, who you may remember as the host of The Talkback, a podcast we guested on back in September 2020 when we first launched. We love Adam and we love The Talkback. Mm-hmm. The show will be exploring New York's biggest unsolved murders, hauntings, disappearances, and more. So give them a listen. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and you can find Kyle over at his YouTube channel. That is called Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.